Yay old man. Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay, or Ma, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And it's a little bit of a shorter show this week. I do have four cinematic films to talk about, but I only found the time to watch one streaming film this week. So. Hopefully this should be a relatively short show. In time for the Easter holidays, the Cinematic Fair includes some family-friendly films like Sonic the Hedgehog 2, a sequel nobody particularly asked for, but I could get into the Odeon Cinema for free, so why not? We have the latest DreamWorks animated film, The Bad Guys, and for the more teen-friendly market, we have the latest superhero film, or perhaps more accurately supervillain film, Morbius. And the art house end of the spectrum at the cinema was taken care of by The Novice. A film I actually watched through extra legal means a couple of weeks ago because of its potential Oscar worthiness. And indeed, in my personal Oscar nominations, I did give a nomination. So that should tell you that I really did like The Novice, and I hope that enough people hear about it and enough people see it. And randomly, I did have some time to kill, and the streaming film which piqued my interest the most was a Colombian documentary on Netflix called Broken Idol, The Undoing of Diomedes Diaz about a famous singer who was accused of murder, essentially. So yes, an eclectic mix of stuff this week, even though we do have a lot of family-friendly stuff. But nevertheless, let's get on with this week's reviews. Big Screen Sonic the Hedgehog 2 goes down as one of those sequels that nobody particularly asked for, but he's still going to make enough money that it's probably going to be worthwhile for the studio. And by God, does Paramount need some cash? Because they have not had a very good run of it over recent years. But regardless, Sonic the Hedgehog 2 exists, it is out, and it is in cinemas. Like the first Sonic the Hedgehog movie, this film is directed by Jeff Fowler, who has a background in animation, and these Sonic the Hedgehog movies are his only feature-length films. Although I am rather interested in his next project listed on IMDb, apparently it's another one of these live-action CGI animation hybrid films, based around the Pink Panther. And potentially, that could actually be really, really interesting. So, yeah, we're going to have to see about that, but Jeff Fowler, once again, direct Sonic the Hedgehog 2, in which this CGI hedgehog from space, voiced by Ben Schwartz, is living in the middle of Green Hills, Montana, 
because Green Hills is the first stage of Sonic, but he is living with his quote-unquote parents, James Marsden and Tika Sumter. But at the start of the film, Dr. Robotnik, as played by Jim Carrey, comes back from the mushroom planet he was exiled to at the end of the first film and starts creating havoc once more. Because this time, he has a troublemaking sidekick with his own agenda, Knuckles the Echidna, voiced by Idris Elba, who is on a quest of bloody vengeance against Sonic the Hedgehog and all hedgehog kind, in search of the Supreme Emerald, a.k.a. the MacGuffin, but Jim Carrey says, ooh, that sounds interesting, and now he's after it too. So everybody's after this giant emerald. Knuckles has sworn vengeance against Sonic, and Sonic knows absolutely nothing about this. And observing from a distance a fox with two tails, named Tails, and voiced by Colleen O'Shaughnessy, comes along and says, I can protect the greatest hero in the universe, Sonic. So. The classic characters from the video games and the classic characters from the Sonic cartoon shows, Sonic, Knuckles and Tails, join up in this sequel, which is basically more of the same. And that is exactly what this is. I mean, what I said about the first Sonic movie is almost exactly the same thing I can say about Sonic the Hedgehog 2. I mean, I did go back and and re-listen to my review of Sonic the Hedgehog to refresh myself. I mean, it's weird. It was only just before the pandemic. And that was in the same episode as Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn and Parasite, two very different films, both of which I recommend on various different levels. It was also in the same episode as Doolittle. Man, I forgot that film existed. Cinema moves so quickly. But yeah. I went back and listened to my review of Sonic the Hedgehog, and what I said about the first movie was not as bad as I expected, far too many pop culture references, and far too many blatant pieces of product placement, and also a rather sweet approach to the idea of parenthood, particularly adoptive parenthood, and that's basically what we have here. I think they do lean quite heavily into the teenage aspect of parenthood and also explicitly make this a metaphor for adoption. James Marsden and Tika Sumter specifically say at various points, you are our kid. And I think that's very important and and actually rather sweet. But there still is far too much product placement. There's a sequence which takes place at a destination wedding in Hawaii. Actually, there's a large chunk of the film which takes place at a destination wedding in Hawaii. And the filmmakers want us to be absolutely sure to know without any shadow of a doubt that this destination wedding in Hawaii is taking place at the Four Seasons Hotel Oahu. I mean, come on, really? There's also far too many pop culture references. There's 80s movies like Poltergeist and Ghostbusters and Raiders of the Lost Ark, which are explicitly referenced. 
there's a very, very old reference, which I doubt anybody will know. And I actually, thinking about it, I wonder if this was a Jim Carrey ad lib. But at one point, Dr. Robotnik says, Klaatu Barada Nikto. And how many people watching Sonic the Hedgehog 2 are going to get that reference? Quite honestly, how many people listening to this podcast are going to get that reference? Klaatu Barada Nikto. There's also one sentence which includes not only a reference to Men in Black, but also the Marvel Cinematic Universe. In the same sentence. This is the type of film that when Sonic the Hedgehog is excited that James Marsden and Tika Sumter, his quote-unquote parents, are going to be away for the weekend at this destination wedding in Hawaii, you just know that they're going to have a reference to that Tom Cruise scene in Risky Business where he's sliding on his socks on a parquet floor in front of a staircase. You just know that's the visual cue that's going to happen. And indeed it does. I mean, and Risky Business is one of those films, I mean, I haven't seen it in a very, very long time, but I really, really doubt that Risky Business holds up at all well through modern eyes when you consider that essentially that's a film about exploiting women so yeah that's a reference in sonic the hedgehog 2 and there's far far too many of them and there's also very obvious needle drops i mean bruno mars makes an appearance and pantera makes another appearance both of them very very obvious needle drops there's weird references as well. At one point, Jim Carrey says there were good people on both sides, which again, thinking about it, is probably a Jim Carrey ad lib and possibly also tells you how long this film's been in production because I think that's a reference that's a little dated now. But it's that kind of movie with very obvious references, shoehorned exposition, because there's just no elegant way of doing it. It's just ticking the boxes, going from here to here to here. We end up in Siberia at one point, so of course there's some Russian dancing, and there's also some a snowboarding sequence, and the mountains in Siberia aren't that tall. So yeah, it, it's perfunctory, basic, family-friendly, family entertainment stuff. Nothing particularly bad, nothing particularly offensive. It's just very, very average. It's exactly what you expect to get from this type of movie. I do appreciate the fact they have explicitly made this franchise about not only parenthood, but adoptive parenthood. And that's no bad thing. So, yeah, I mean, there's moments here and there. There's moments of sweetness. There's moments of silliness. And, I mean, the moments of silliness far outweigh the moments of sweetness. But that's what this is. So, yeah, you get what you pay for. You get what you expect. And Sonic the Hedgehog 2 is a pretty reasonable, pretty dispassionate, pretty low meh. Next up, we have the latest DreamWorks animated feature, The Bad Guys, based on a series of children's books written by Aaron Blaby. This is an animated feature about a group of anthropomorphized animals who tend to be the villains in every story. 
There's the Big Bad Wolf, voiced by Sam Rockwell. There's a Snake, voiced by Mark Maron. There's a Tarantula, voiced by Aquafina. There's a Shark, voiced by Craig Robinson. And there's a Piranha, voiced by Anthony Ramos. Broadway star in the Heights star, Anthony Ramos. So, guess who gets to sing the song that is attached to this number? And it's actually not a bad song. But anyway, good to see Anthony Ramos getting some work in mainstream Hollywood. But these group of villains are so used to being portrayed as the villains in all these stories that they've decided to lean into it. So they're a group of villains. They go in, they steal stuff, they pull off bank heist after bank heist, pull off gallery heist after gallery heist, just acquiring loot because that's all the world expects of them. And their latest plan is to go to the Golden Dolphin Awards, which is an award handed out to the the best person of the year, as decided by the governor, a fox voiced by Zazie Beetz. But this year, the winner of this humanitarian award, or animaltarian award, I guess, is a guinea pig as voiced by Richard Iowadi. And the plan is to go in and steal the Golden Dolphin because this is the biggest heist that nobody's ever managed to pull off before. And stealing an award for somebody who's good makes you the worst person ever. And that's what these bad guys want to be. But as this heist is in the process of happening, Sam Rockwell starts realising that it actually feels good to be good. So maybe he wants to go straight, and maybe he wants to try and persuade his other bad guys to go straight with him. But can these villainous creatures go straight? Do they want to go straight? And will the wider world believe that they want to go straight? Can we judge a book by its cover? And that's basically what this is. I mean, it, it, it's pretty basic, pretty standard stuff. Don't judge a book by its cover. What does it feel like to be portrayed as the villain in every single story? I mean, there's one sequence where the big bad wolf, as voiced by Sam Rockwell, just throws down all these storybooks, and it's you know, Little Red Riding Hood, The Three Little Pigs, Peter and the Wolf. All of these stories where the big bad wolf is the villain. And that's all he thinks he'll ever be until maybe he has a change of heart. And yeah, it's pretty basic stuff. The animation style, however, I found really, really interesting. It's that 2.5D style, which has been popularised by things like Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse and the Netflix animation Klaus. It doesn't have the glossy polish of traditional CG animation. It's got a little bit more texture, a little bit more carefully lit. It looks like a picture book in a lot of ways, and it's very, very nice, very well done animation. I was very impressed by the visual style of this film. But there are questions. I mean, yes, it is, at the end of the day, a very basic story. You can see every single twist and turn coming. But... There are things which I need answered. 
One of the subplots of this film is one of the things that these bad guys do in order to be seen as good guys is break into an animal research facility and free hundreds of guinea pigs from this animal research facility. And there's you know, a gag because the snake likes to eat guinea pigs because you know it feels so good to do something so evil you know like eating this cute furry guinea pig eating it makes me bad and i feel good because it makes me feel bad so dozens and if not hundreds of guinea pigs i mean and you see it in the trailer that you know hundreds of guinea pigs get eaten by this snake so this is a world where guinea pigs are non-sentient, non-anthropomorphized pets, essentially. There's also a subplot involving a pet cat as well. And yet these are anthropomorphized animals, including this anthropomorphized guinea pig who's been given the Humanitarian Award, voiced by Richard Ayawadi. So simultaneously in this world, we have an anthropomorphized guinea pig who's accepting this award, and hundreds of guinea pigs who are liable to be eaten how does this world work i was really struggling to rectify all these different things and there's also stupid stuff as well like this shark voiced by craig robinson is supposed to be a master of disguise where he's like two or three times the size of every other character in the film and yet as soon as he puts on a moustache He's a master of disguise. You know, somebody mistakes him for his father, and you know he's causes a distraction by pretending to go into labour when dressed as a woman, and nobody notices it's a shark. I mean, really, what what's going on there? And you know, this tarantula, voiced by Aquafina, she is the hacker. I mean, because every heist crew needs a hacker in the modern day, so she is a tarantula called Webs, which is cute enough, but the vast majority of tarantulas don't spin webs. So you screwed up there a little bit, but it's it's a kid's book. I I guess some of these things you're just going to have to live with. But the whole thing about anthropomorphized guinea pigs living in the same world where guinea pigs are there to be eaten and have animal testing carried out on them that i really really struggled with but yeah i think the bad guys is a good film i enjoyed myself the visual style i think is hugely impressive the story is good enough with a couple of question marks the voice acting i think is very good all round the idea of trying to go straight and not being able to because of your own personality and people's perception of you i think there's some good messaging here so yeah i think in general the bad guys is a decent enough film i don't think it stands out in any way if this ends up as one of my favorite animated films of the year it will be a relatively low quality year for animation but I think it's got a chance of being one of my favourite animated films of the year. I think it's adequate, is, is the best way I can describe it. And that probably is damning with faint praise, but that's kind of how I feel about The Bad Guys, which is available cinematically and for me is a pretty middle-of-the-road, pretty okay 
nightmare. And then we come to Morbius, the latest superhero franchise film, or I suppose in this case it's a supervillain franchise film. This is based on the Marvel character Morbius the Living Vampire, but it is one of the Sony-produced films, so it's in the same universe as the Spider-Man films and the Venom films. It's that corner of the Spider-adjacent universe. This film is directed by Daniel Espinosa, a Swedish director who, in 2010, did a Swedish film called Snabber Cash, a violent bank heist movie which got him enough attention in the English-speaking world that he went over to Hollywood and made such films as Safe House, Child 44 and Life. And Child 44, I thought, was actually pretty good. But, yes, he is a Swedish director with a background in action, and he made this film Morbius, which stars Jared Leto as a genius scientist who suffers from a debilitating blood-borne disease. His life is short, his life is painful, and he is determined that he will save humanity from this terrible blood-borne disease. In the course of his research, he accidentally invents some artificial blood, which saves millions of lives, but that's not good enough because my disease is not cured. He is determined that he will cure this disease. So he goes to Costa Rica and starts investigating vampire bats because they've got special enzymes in their saliva which help with blood clotting. And this is a real thing where people are doing actual research into the saliva of vampire bats because there's some very interesting medical applications for it. Not quite sure if it relates to this particular disease, but regardless. Jared Leto and his fellow doctor, Adria Arjona, and there's some mutual attraction going on there, but, you know, work colleagues, probably not a good idea to cross that line. So they're working together with this vampire bat saliva, and their financing is done by Jared Leto's childhood friend, who also suffers from the same disease, played by Matt Smith. And their mentor figure from the past is played by Jared Harris who's actually barely in the film but Jared Leto is determined to cure himself so he unwisely injects himself with a serum made from this bat saliva and what are the chances he turns himself into a vampire-like monster who needs to consume human blood in order to survive I mean this artificial blood which he's invented will keep him going for a while but that will wear off and eventually he will need to have human blood so can he live with himself can he keep one step ahead of fbi agents tyrese gibson and al madrigal and what happens when somebody a little less scrupulous than him who doesn't mind slaughtering people in their dozens gets his hands on their serum and turns themselves into a vampire as well so, it is part of modern cinema that a lot of the big budget blockbuster films that are out there are superhero films. 
and the overwhelming majority of these superhero films are absolutely 100% designed to be part of a franchise. If you watch this one, you will watch dozens more of films in this franchise. Hey, who knows who Morbius is going to team up with later? I mean, there's potential to team up with Venom. I mean, weirdly, at one point when Jared Leto is trying to scare a street thug, he says, I am Venom. So, I mean, this is clearly something which is in the, on the cards. There's a guest spot right at the end of the film from Michael Keaton, so you can see where the next Morbius film, if there is indeed a next Morbius film, will be going. But we know that one of the major factors in these superhero films is setting up a franchise. But really, at the end of the day, that's all that Morbius is. It really feels like we are ticking boxes. I mean, this is an origin story. It's an origin story going down all the paths you expect it to go down, ticking all the boxes you anticipate. We need to do this. We need to do this. We need to do this. We need to set up the villain. We need to set up the premise. We need to set up the people surrounding it. We need to set up the love interest. We need to set up the police enforcement. All of that is done. It just goes through, ticks all those boxes, and it feels, at the end of the day, like a two-hour prologue to the cool shit which is going to be happening in the sequels. It really doesn't feel to me like a complete film. It feels to me like this is the shit we need to do because the franchise is going to expand. It's set up. It's nothing but set up. It's nothing but exposition. And it's just not interesting. It's trying for a kind of melancholy, gothic approach to the vampire mythology. There are certain angles that this film takes, certain scenes even in this film, which strongly reminded me of Anne Rice's interview with a vampire. Going for that gothic tragic, you know, the pain that I need to kill people in order to survive. How can I live with myself? Do I live with myself? Can I justify living this extremely lengthy existence by taking other people's lives? I mean, really, that could have been interesting, that could have been cool, but it's very badly handled in this film, in my opinion. There's a sequence which takes place on a container ship in international waters off Long Island, and when you're scientific experiments need to be carried out in international waters maybe that's a red flag but anyway this container ship is called the murnau really you're gonna put that reference in you know fw murnau the director of the black and white nosferatu you're gonna put that reference in there really i mean in a lot of ways this is very very lazy by the numbers box ticking movie making and it doesn't help that Daniel Espinosa, yes, he does have a background in action movies, but this film, the way it has been put together, the way it has been edited, and largely in the modern day, the way the CGI has been put together, it is utter fucking chaos. 
There's no clear visual language. There's no clear geography of where people are. It really is. I mean, what the hell's going on? I can't even tell what's going on half the time in these action scenes. I mean, there's you know a big, gigantic battle by the end. I mean, it's not too much of a spoiler to say that there's a big, gigantic battle between a powered Jared Leto and a powered Matt Smith. And this goes on forever. It's unclear as to what exactly is going on. It's edited to shit. And what is happening? I do not know. And frankly, I do not care. This is bad filmmaking. I mean, on several levels, this is bad filmmaking. This film has no ending. It really, really does feel like, uh, well, it's all right, an hour and 45 minutes, an hour and three quarter prologue to the stuff which is going to happen in the next few films. And that's just not entertaining. It's not well done. I don't think it's particularly well acted. I mean, uh, Jared Leto is very, very hit or miss. I actually think he was very, very good in a very underseen film called The Little Things at the beginning of the year. He was up for Best Supporting Actor Awards last year for that, and I think he deserved it. He was a cartoon in The House of Gucci. He's basically a cartoon here as well. I I have no idea what he's doing, what's going on. And that's the same that I can say for the rest of this film. It is utter fucking chaos. It feels like an hour and three-quarter prologue to the core ship which is coming, and that's just not good enough. So for me, Morbius, available in the cinemas now, is an A. So that's the mainstream stuff taken care of, and now let's have some alternative programming with the Art House film that was released this week, or one of the Art House films that was released this week, The Novice, which I've already seen through extra-legal means, and I actually think is rather good. So here is my full review of the film, The Novice. Archive start. It's the middle of March, and I'm watching lots of films through extra-legal means in order to include them in my Oscar deliberations. And I believe that the final film I have ticked off of that list is a film called The Novice which did end up on the Gold Derby lists of Oscar potential because its two leading actresses and indeed the filmmaker got nominated for several Independent Spirit Awards. But this is one of those films that's just too small to ever get proper attention from the Oscars. And I think that's a little bit of a shame because this is one of the ones that I really, really wish more people had seen and I really, really wish the Oscars had paid attention to. The Novice is the feature-length debut of writer-director Lauren Hadaway, who has spent almost all her career as a sound editor, and that is the overwhelming majority of her credits on IMDb, is as a sound editor, a Foley editor, and an ADR editor. But she did make her feature-length directorial debut with this film, The Novice, which premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival, where it won Best US Narrative Feature, and it won Best Actress for Isabel Furman. And this is a story that can most easily be compared to Whiplash, which is somewhat interesting since Lauren Hadaway did work as a sound editor on Whiplash. 
But like Whiplash, this is a story about the obsessive need to be the best and putting yourself through absolute hell in order to be the best. And in this particular case, it is being the best at rowing, which is something Lauren Hadaway is familiar with. She was a collegiate rower for SMU University in Texas before turning her attentions towards filmmaking. And she makes this film starring Isabel Furman, who is best known as the little girl in Orphan, one of the best twisty horror films I think I've ever seen. I did not see the twist in Orphan coming, and it's awesome. Weirdly, they appear to be planning to make a prequel to Orphan, which I'm not sure how that's going to work on several levels, but Isabel Furman plays a college student who is part of the novice rowing team. Now, this is you know, people who have no experience of, of rowing, but you know, you're athletic enough, you might, if you work really hard, get into the team, you might even get a scholarship. So this is something that Isabel Furman is determined to do because she is a type A personality. She over-prepares, she over-analyzes, she needs to be the best, she needs to be first which is annoying to her TA-slash-teacher-slash-eventual-love-interest, Delone, and also to another freshman who is on the novice rowing team, played by Amy Forsyth, who tries to connect with somebody who's in the same boat. We are freshmen together. We both want to be on the varsity team. We can you know, help and support each other through this. But Isabel Furman's obsessive need to be the best puts a spanner in all her relationships and in her life and in her mental health. So will Isabel Furman make the varsity rowing team? And will it actually be worth it if she does, given the hell she is putting herself through? So yeah, I mean, when I saw this, I thought, okay, this is a variation on Whiplash. But very, very quickly into it, I realised that another heavy influence and maybe even inspiration for this film is Black Swan. This is a film about the obsessive need to be the best drastically affecting your mental health. Lauren Hadaway, as a director, manages to put the mental state of Isabel Furman front and centre with heavily edited and artfully composed montages. Obviously, given her background, there's also some great use of sound effects. It's a complete sensory overload, a complete sensory experience of this woman's life and the hell she's putting herself through. I mean, and she doesn't need to do it. I mean, none of her fellow rowers tell her to do this. None of her coaches tell her to do this. She does it herself. She needs to be the best. And it's not even like she you know, particularly loves rowing or wants to be a rower. The more time we spend with Isabel Furman, the more we realise oh, I mean, this is something in front of her and she needs to be the best. She doesn't even particularly seem to like it or love it, but she needs to be the best. 
which is much to the detriment of her quasi friend Amy Forsyth. I mean, when the film starts, you you see these two people, you know, kind of supporting each other, kind of being friends together. I mean, we're in the same boat. We're we're having the same experiences. But the more time we realise that you know, Amy Forsyth actually needs the scholarship. She needs to be in the big boat. Otherwise, she's going to have to leave school. Whereas Isabel Furman isn't in the same boat. <laughs> no pun intended. But Isabel Furman doesn't need it, whereas Amy Forsyth does. And yet, Isabel Furman still needs to be the best. She still needs to beat everybody. And that includes her quasi-friend, Amy Forsyth. And the more things go along, the more you realise that everything is being pushed to the side because of her obsessive need to be first. And that includes her eventual relationship with Delone. Now, it starts out that Delone is the TA, the teacher's assistant, you know, the person who gives the freshman physics classes, and Isabel Furman is a physics major. And Isabel Furman, with her obsessive need to be perfect, she redoes every single test. She does it over and over and over again. You're doing each test three times to make sure every little mistake has been rectified. And you know, Delone has to stay behind with her. So initially, this is quite annoying. But eventually, Delone kind of finds it cute. And you know, eventually, once they're not in a teacher-student relationship, a romantic relationship starts between Delone and Isabel Furman. And I love the fact that Isabel Furman being a lesbian is like the fifth most important thing in this film. She has a love interest and it just so happens to be a woman. I mean, possibly you might think it's a little bit more common given that she is a college athlete. But still, Isabel Furman is a lesbian and she has a love interest and it's a woman. But this is a love interest which also starts to fall by the wayside with Isabel Furman's obsessive need to be first, need to be the best. I mean, it's not like Natalie Portman in Black Swan, you know, I am aiming for perfection because I love ballet, or at least I, at one point I did love ballet. With Isabel Furman in The Novice, she just needs to be the best, and she needs to be seen to be the best. There is a ranking available, and she needs to be top of the ranking. People need to see that she is the top of the ranking. And nothing else matters. Uh, and nobody else is putting this pressure on her. It's entirely putting pressure on herself. And her mental state starts cracking. The rowing team, the mascot of this university's rowing team, is a crow. So throughout the course of the film, coring crows and seeing crows starts becoming more and more part of her surrealistic aspects. You know, the hallucinations or whatever of overwork and crows start becoming a major part of that. And also crabs. Now, catching a crab is a rowing term for a misjudged stroke which slows down the boat. So if you catch a crab, it's a bad thing. So crabs also start being part of her hallucinations and boiling crabs start to be part of her hallucinations. And yeah, I mean, the surrealistic, the metaphysical aspects of this, I mean, Lauren Hathaway as director, she really does put 
a lot of visual flair, a lot of visual invention in this. This is not a straightforward telling of this story. This is a very heightened reality, heavy with symbolism. And, yeah, I mean, I think Isabel Furman as a director really works. I mean, as a writer, I mean, this obsessive need for you know, this unusual character. I mean, seeing this kind of character in films usually, it's usually you know, other people are forcing you to do this or you need a goal in mind. You know, if I don't do this, then something bad will happen. But the thing is, if Isabel Furman doesn't become the best rower on the team, she, if she doesn't make the varsity boat, nothing will happen. Her life will not be significantly affected if she doesn't achieve her goals. This is, to some degree, a futile pursuit, yet she needs to do it. And I think that's a really fascinating thing to explore. The obsessive need to do something without any strong goals in mind. You know, simply being the best is the goal in and of itself. And I think that's really, really fascinating. And it does lead to a little bit more of a positive outcome than I would have anticipated. I mean, similarly to you know, the most obvious comparison, Whiplash, you kind of get the impression by the end of the film that, yeah, maybe it was worth it. And I'm not sure that's the healthiest attitude to have with this type of film, because Isabel Furman puts herself through a lot. And she puts the people around her through a lot. Well, what purpose? For what goal? And yet this is the character we have. And Isabel Furman plays it astonishingly well. At time of recording, I think I'm going to include her as deserving of an Oscar nomination in my Oscar preview videos. I think she's that good. She didn't win the Independent Spirits Award for Best Actress. That went to Taylor Page for Zola. I mean, a film I avoided because that sounded so trashy. But yeah, Isabel Furman is outstanding in this film, and it makes me even more eager to watch the horror film What The Last Thing Mary Saw, which she appears in as well. So yeah, Isabel Furman, outstanding performance. Lauren Hadaway is both writer and director, outstanding performance. And all around, this is a film you might easily overlook, but I think it is definitely worth checking out. And for me, The Novice, which I hope will eventually get some kind of legal release here in the UK, is for me a yay. Archive finish. I did give Isabel Furman a Best Actress nomination in my personal Oscar nominations. I think she was that good. I think she is excellent in this film. And I'm actually rather... Looking forward to seeing Isabel Furman in another film which she released very recently, The Last Thing Mary Saw, which is available on Shudder. The current plan is to buy myself a subscription to Shudder next week and watch several films, including The Last Thing Mary Saw and See For Me. So, yes, we're going to have multiple Isabel Furman films reviewed within weeks of each other, so that is hopefully coming soon. But in the meantime, hopefully you can still find The Novice in the cinemas because I think it's really, really good and it is, once again, a yay. Netflix and chill. Broken Idol, 
the undoing of Diomedes Diaz is a Colombian documentary available on Netflix which charts the rise and fall of Colombian folk singer Diomedes Diaz, who was one of the most famous and most successful proponents of Vallenato music, a cousin of the more widely proliferated cumbia music in Colombia, but this Vallenato music comes from a specific region on the Caribbean coast of Colombia, based around the town of Valle du Par, where Diomedes Diaz worked his way up from the bottom and became one of the most successful music singers in the whole of Colombia. His stock was elevated when, in 1994, not only did he release a very nationalistic Colombian song in conjunction with the Football World Cup, he also started performing at political rallies for the man who would eventually become President of Colombia, Ernesto Samper, who appears in this documentary and was also later caught up accepting money from the cartels, but such was the case in most of the 90s in Colombia. So, Diomedes Diaz was a hugely successful star, particularly in this Valle de Par region on the Caribbean coast, but he got involved with and arrested over the death of one of his fans slash groupies slash dozens of women that Diomedes Diaz had relationships with. And in the wake of her death, there were criminal charges laid, there were prison sentences involved, and Diomedes Diaz's career took a hit, although not quite as much of a hit as you would necessarily hope for. And this is a documentary which charts this rise and limited fall of this singer with feet of clay. So the primary response I have, having watched this documentary, Broken Idol, is that if you are rich and famous, you can literally get away with murder. My opinion of this case, having watched this documentary, is that Diomedes Diaz and or people who are closely associated with him, including his quote-unquote fiancé, who never actually married him but is another interviewee in this documentary, were directly and probably criminally responsible for the death of Doris Adriana Nino. And yes, there were prison sentences involved, but not nearly as long as they should have been. And because Diomedes Diaz was in prison in this Valle de Par region, where he was a living legend, he had a recording studio in prison and managed to release at least one album whilst in prison. And yeah, he seems to remain a popular figure in Colombian popular culture. He still seems to be widely played and all that kind of stuff. He is one of the masters of this Vallenato folk tradition. In fact, let's 
play one of his tracks right here, or at least a clip of it. Como no la tengo escrita, le voy a contar, señores, a contar mi biografía desde niño hasta esta parte. Como no la tengo escrita, le voy a contar, señores, a contar mi biografía desde niño hasta esta parte. Soy yo de gente pobre, honrado y trabajador, y así luchando la vida, me levantaron mis padres. Soy yo de gente that track is called Mi Biografia, and Diomedes Diaz released that album the day after he was first questioned about the death of Doris Adriana Nino. His life went on basically unchecked for several years after her death because he kept working the system. I mean, oh yes, it just so happens I've developed Guillain-Barre syndrome, so I can't possibly be sent to jail. I'm going to go off to a rural part of Colombia, which just so happens to be in the control of the paramilitaries. So even if the police wanted to arrest me, which, given that they're via Dupar police, they probably don't want to arrest me, but even if they did, they can't get past all the masked men with guns. I mean. He got away scot-free for years and left other people behind him to take the rap for him. And, yeah, it's disturbing how easy it was for him to get away with murder. I mean, I, I think I personally believe Diomedes Diaz was criminally responsible or people associated, directly associated with Diomedes Diaz, were criminally responsible for the death of Doris Adriana Nino. Yet, very, very little happened. And it's just part of the whole rock and roll lifestyle. In many ways, the story of Diomedes Diaz is the story of so many rock stars. Started from very, very poor beginnings, worked his way up through the music industry, starting out as a songwriter for other people, eventually getting a record contract, eventually becoming much more successful, finding the right people to collaborate with. There's even some rock and roll lifestyle tragedy involved in the story of Diomedes Diaz, which is no more than a footnote in the grand scheme of things, but in most of the stories, that kind of tragedy and you know, just being able to avoid that tragedy was part of the story. And being in Colombia, he eventually got himself heavily involved in cocaine, heavily involved in the cartels. There's one story that he played Madison Square Garden, and by the looks of it, a very full Madison Square Garden in New York. And then a few days later, he was scheduled to play for some narcos back in Colombia. And that's just the way things went in the 90s. And that particular anecdote has a very surprising conclusion. But he was a legend in this Valladepar region and took full advantage of it. Always had women around him. There are literally dozens of women he's had acknowledged children with and dozens of children he acknowledged as his. And that's probably only scratching the surface 
of how many children Diomedes Diaz actually had. Somebody in the film estimates it might be as many as 70. And Doris Adriana Nino was one of these women. And yeah, the last woman he had a confirmed child with, or an acknowledged child with, was the same age as his oldest daughter. He's that kind of person. And the brother of the dead girl has a very rose-tinted view of what his sister actually was. I don't believe the brother's version of who his sister was, and I don't believe you know the surviving people who knew her, their version of what it was. I mean, the fiancé and the bodyguards who were there that night and get interviewed in this film, they have a very specific version of events as well, and I don't believe that either. I think it's very noticeable in another aspect of you know being rich and famous and getting away with stuff that Doris Adriana Nino's body was found in a rural community several miles away from Bogota and was initially identified as a sex worker from the nearby town of Yatra. Very, very conveniently. Sex workers in Yatra said, oh yes, that's our friend Sandra, oh dear, what a tragedy, she's dead. And she was buried as a sex worker named Sandra, until somebody said, hang on a minute, it's actually this missing girl from Bogota who was last seen with this famous singer Diomedes Diaz. I mean, very, very convenient that that happened, isn't it? And it's just that kind of thing. I mean, his lawyer, Diomedes Diaz's lawyer, is one of those very flamboyant, fame-hungry, attention-hungry people. Somebody describes him as a circus buffoon. But that's the kind of thing you need. And that's the kind of way you get away with murder, which is what this film is essentially demonstrating. Privilege always wins. And this is a demonstration of that. And it's done in a pretty interesting way. I mean, it's more or less, you know, archive footage meets talking head interviews i mean talking head interviews with the you know people involved i mean like the quote unquote widow who never actually married him refuses to say on camera anything that happened that night so that was a little bit of a waste of time you know some of the bodyguards who were involved they get interviewed and like i said i don't believe a word of what's coming out of their mouths but it's that kind of documentary we will never know for sure what happened to Doris Adriana Nino, but this is an attempt to do it. And the filmmaking is pretty by the numbers. It uses a technique which I think is becoming much more common recently, or I've certainly noticed it quite a bit recently. There's almost an overture section of you know the little introductory bit at the beginning of the film is you know, if you don't know who this is, and, and you very likely won't know who Diomedes Diaz is. But here is you know, what is coming up in this documentary. I mean, here, here's who he is. This is why he's famous. This is his music. We know that he's eventually going to get arrested. He's going to go to trial and he gets involved in this death. But, and I mean, that's fine. I mean, give us a, a primer for what we're about to see. But I think in this particular case, they made it too long. It's eight minutes of introduction you know here are the bullet points of what's coming up in this documentary and yeah i think that was a little bit too much but yeah it's pretty workmanlike directing from 
first time directors Jaime Barbosa and Jorge Duran. But yeah, I think it's an interesting story. And I like this kind of situation where I have absolutely no idea who Diomedes Diaz is. I have no idea why I should know or care about who he is. But I've now been told a little bit about who he is and a little bit about life in Colombia, particularly during the narco-controlled 90s with people like Escobar basically in charge of the country and you know the president's eventually getting done for accepting millions of dollars from the cartels and now appearing on screen in this documentary which was very strange but yes it's an interesting little experience and yeah i think if you are willing to explore some of the lesser known corners of netflix there are worse things to do than this. So for me, the documentary from Colombia, Broken Idol, ends up being a pretty interesting, pretty solid meh. Coming attractions. It's a little bit of a quiet week at the cinema next week because, again, probably thanks to the Easter holidays, this is the week where the latest Fantastic Beasts film is going to be released. And I've long ago given up on that franchise. I don't think I've watched the last five or six Wizarding World films. So I'm not going to watch the latest Fantastic Beasts film. And therefore, I don't have many cinema trips planned because many other films were avoiding that week like The Plague because they just can't compete. So there are a few alternative programming options. There is a documentary called Julia, which was shortlisted for the documentary feature Oscar. It's about the legendary TV chef Julia Child and is directed by the same people who did the documentary RBG a few years back about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So interesting subject matter, respected directors, and I do want to check out Julia. I actually gave Julia an honourable mention in my documentary feature Oscar preview video, Sight Unseen. I felt fairly confident that I would have given it an honourable mention out of the available shortlist. So we're going to have to see if my prediction was accurate. And I do think it is worthy of at least an honourable mention in the Oscars. And speaking of Oscars, another film I've already seen through Extra Legal Means, which is released this week, is the Finnish film Compartment Number 6, which I have already watched in order to include it in my Oscar deliberations, and indeed I did give it one of my personal nominations for International Feature out of the 15 film shortlist. It's a story about a Finnish student in Moscow in, I think, the late 90s or early 2000s, who wants to travel to the far north of Russia, to Murmansk, in order to look at some petroglyphs, some rock art. Her girlfriend, her Russian girlfriend, at the last minute cancels on her, so she goes on this train journey from Moscow to Murmansk on her own and has to share a compartment with a boorish, drunk Russian guy. And over the course of these two or three days are on this train together, an unusually close and meaningful bond forms between these two people. It's 
the kind of relationship that's all the more intense because of how short it is. And the fact that, you know, she's gay means that sex is not on the table, and yet there's still a really close bond. And yeah, I thought it was a very nice film, and I'll be giving a full review of it in the next episode. And the other relatively widespread film which is being released next week is a film called The Outfit, which stars Mark Rylance. So there's actually two Mark Rylance films in the cinemas at the moment because Phantom of the Open is still out there. But anyway, Mark Rylance plays a tailor in the, I think, 1920s, who, thanks to a scandal back at home, has moved to Chicago. And the only people who can afford his very expensive, high-quality tailored suits are the local mobsters. So this tailor's shop in Chicago has managed to morph itself into a dead drop. So various mobsters come and go in this little shop and Mark Rylance keeps himself to himself, just makes the suits, until one night crazy shit starts going down and Mark Rylance has to involve himself in the criminal underworld. And yeah, that sounds like a really interesting premise. It's got a very good cast as well as... Mark Rylance, it's got people like Zoe Deutsch, Dylan O'Neill, Simon Russell Beale, Nikki Amuka Bird, Johnny Flynn. I mean, a very good cast. Judging by the trailer, it looks like a bit of a stagey film. I mean, I don't think it's adapted from a play, but judging by the trailer, it looks like it might have been. It's that kind of very contained story, but it does look fascinating. So, yeah, that's out this week. And. Out next Wednesday, so depending on my recording schedule, this might sneak into the next episode, is a film called The Lost City, starring Channing Tatum and Sandra Bullock. And basically this looks like a total rip-off of Romancing the Stone. It looks like exactly the same tone, exactly the same vibe. And why the hell not? I mean, Romancing the Stone was a huge hit when it came out to some degree, launched the career of Robert Zemeckis. And yet we don't really have any films like it made very much anymore. So why not try again? And yeah, The Lost City does look like it might be fun. And that's out next Wednesday. So probably in two weeks time, but I don't know what my recording schedule is going to be next week. On streaming platforms, there's a couple of intriguing things. On Disney+, Plus. There's a film released by Disney in the usual Disney fair. It's a live-action film called Better Nate Than Never about a flamboyant young boy who dreams of being a Broadway star, so runs away to New York with his best friend and crashes with his kooky aunt Lisa Kudrow, because, of course, a kooky aunt is going to be played by Lisa Kudrow in this kind of film, but... Anyway, he wants to audition for Lilo and Stitch the Musical. And, yeah, a young flamboyant boy finding his own path in life. And that could well be fun. I believe that's even a musical as well. So, yeah, why not check Better Nate Than Never out as well? And on Amazon Prime Video this week, there's a spy thriller called All the Old Knives in which Chris Pine is a CIA agent 
who's asked to come in and investigate his old team in Vienna, including his ex-lover, Tandiwe Newton, who might well be a mole. So, yeah, lots of twisty, turny spycraft stuff. Looks like it's a bit of a restrained Cold War, trust no one kind of thing. And yeah, that sounds like it might be fun. So All the Old Knives gets put on the list as well. On Netflix this week, there's a film called Metal Lords being released. This is the first fruiting of a deal that Benioff and Weiss, the people behind Game of Thrones, signed a first look deal with Netflix. And this is what they decided to make, or at least one of them did. I think it's D.B. Weiss made this film. It's about a boy in high school who is an outsider, is a loner, and is really into metal. When everybody around him is into sort of boy band and grunge and all that kind of stuff, he's into metal. And he wants to enter a battle of the bands with an equally loner, outsider, best friend. but. They don't have any musical talent, so they try and persuade a band geek girl, cellist, to join their band as a bassist and become the best metal band in this high school. So, yeah, that sounds like it might be a cute little film. And there's also a film being released, a Spanish film, or a Spanish language film at least, called Dancing on Glass. And I'm not sure what to make of this, but I'm putting it on the list. I'm intrigued enough by it that I'm putting it on the list. It looks basically like a very, very similar story to Black Swan. A ballerina putting herself through absolute hell in order to achieve perfection and forming a strange bond with her mentor and another dancer in the company. I mean, it looks like a a twisted psychological thriller kind of thing. Really not sure what to make of it, but I'm putting it on the list. It might end up on my tablet next time I need to make a trip over to Bristol to watch on the bus. So, yeah, Dancing on Glass is on the list, but it's probably not going to be a very high priority. My highest priority this coming week is a load of streaming films putting two different categories front and centre. There's a couple of different strands of thematically connected films which have become available on streaming. I mean, firstly, because I have now subscribed to Shudder. Just before I was about to do so, I actually found an online promotional code, so I saved myself a couple of quid by doing it right now anyway. So I am going to be paying attention to Shudder.com for a while including the thriller C For Me, which is being released onto Shudder this coming week, which was released on streaming platforms earlier. Blind girl house-sitting when her home gets house-invaded, or the home she is house-sitting for gets home-invaded. And her only assistance is from a girl halfway across the country who is watching through her smartphone and an app designed to help blind people. So yeah, that sounds really cool. Blind girl with remote assistance trying to survive a home invasion. And also on Shudder.com, there's They Live in the Grey, a social worker 
investigates strange happenings at a home and potentially wants to take a child away, but then realises, thanks to her recently awakened psychic powers, that there's supernatural forces at work, and that's what's getting this child in danger. And there's also the last thing Mary saw, which I mentioned a bit earlier. Late 19th century, very religious family. The grandmother of this family dies, and the granddaughter is interrogated. Why is your grandmother dead? Why are you recently blind? Has it got anything to do with the relationship you're having with the maid, being played by the aforementioned Isabel Furman? So, yeah, lots of religious repression and sexual repression in the late 19th century, and that does seem pretty cool. And since I'm going to be on a horror streak anyway, I may as well add to the list of high priorities the Amazon Prime video release film Master about an African-American female academic who is appointed as the master of a prestigious, mostly white university and strange supernatural stuff starts affecting her and a couple of other African-American women in the environment. So, yeah, horror tropes approaching racial equality, very common thread over recent years. So that's a load of horror films I'm intending to see in the coming weeks. And the other interconnected thread is intimate films, one location dealing with families. Because on Sky Cinema, there's a film called Barbarians being released with Ewan Rian and Tom Cullen. A dinner party from hell, basically. Ewan Rian inviting friends over to celebrate his birthday. And as the course of the night progresses secrets get revealed though i think there's even home invasions i think drugs get involved as well but you know secrets come to the fore and this small group of people has all their innermost demons exposed which is kind of the same as a couple of streaming films i've come across an american one called black jade where a woman visits her twin sister and her twin sister's husband is kind of going crazy and that might be an issue and there's a british variation on the same theme help in which a woman randomly visits one of her friends and weird psychological stuff starts happening between these two women and the partner of the woman whose house it is so yeah, that looks like it's an intriguing micro-budget film as well. So those are all the streaming films I'm intending to watch over the next week or so. Fingers crossed I might actually be able to put out a streaming special with some or all of those videos in it. So hopefully look out for that. Depending on the schedules, I might also have time to tick off some of the Netflix films. I'm really, really intrigued by the new Richard Linklater film, Apollo 10 and a Half, the new Judd Apatow film, The Bubble, and also the independent film from Charlie McDowell, Windfall, which looks really, really interesting. So that might end up on the list as well. But my priority is those horror films, mostly off Shudder, and those micro-budget 
small scale home invasion films as well. So yeah, lots and lots of stuff to get through. And that's not even getting to the fact that I still intend to do a video for my raw footage awards, even though it's absurdly late to be doing that. But nevertheless, the one yay in this particular episode is The Novice. This is a brilliantly acted, brilliantly written and directed film. First time filmmaker Lauren Hadaway is definitely a name to look out for. But this psychologically rich, psychologically intriguing film about the pursuit of perfection and the cost of the pursuit of perfection is really powerful to see. And I did really, really like The Novice. And as soon as this is practical, I will be buying a ticket for it because I believe in paying for my media. So, The Novice is definitely a film to look out for. You might struggle to find it in this Easter holiday period, but I do think it's worth your effort because for me, The Novice is a yay. And that brings us to the end of this show. And all it remains for me to say is this has been Yay, Nay or Ma presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure. <laughs>